Welcome to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and we are back now to start the second chapter of Peace. And uh, we're going to really, really, really take our time with this chapter. So there will be seven recap episodes, plus at least one discussion episode. We don't actually have that mapped out yet. So, you know, really, uh, who can say how many will actually be? (laughs) I'm going to predict fewer than five, and it may only be one, but we don't know yet. But at least we're going to be doing eight episodes on this chapter. And so this recap episode, the first recap episode is just covering seven pages. It's pages 56 to 63 in the Orb 2012 edition that we're using. We are actually recording this episode shortly after we've begun releasing the the first few episodes on chapter one. And I just want to say that the response from you, the listener, has been really awesome, really heartwarming. We have loved hearing from people on the forum and behind the scenes via uh, you know emails and, and messages. But we especially want to say a huge thanks to everyone who has been spreading the word about the show and the fact that we're covering this magnificent novel you know, on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Reddit, that sort of thing. That is immensely helpful in keeping the show on the air. And we really, really appreciate that kind of support. Yeah, thank you so much. It does mean a lot to us. And we're really grateful for all of you listeners who are, as you said, Glenn, getting the word out and supporting the network and uh, allowing us to continue our coverage of, of Gene Wolfe's novel piece. So thank you so much. Let's catch people up on uh, chapter one real quick, and then we can move into the section. We left off with Alden Dennis Weir, our our protagonist, our memoirist in his doctor's office in kind of a mental version of the past, taking a thematic apperception test. We assume the first card is turned over. And then this section, this chapter is called Olivia. And it's really about the time that Weir spends with his aunt while his parents are away. So let's Get into it, Glenn. Right. As you say, chapter two is titled Olivia, the name of Weir's aunt. It's his his father's younger sister. And yeah, this chapter is going to be about the the months. It seems to be, you know, half a year or or more that Weir lived with her while his parents were in Europe. And the circumstances here are this. Uh, As Brandon was surmising last chapter, Bobby Black was seriously injured in the fight on the stairs at Weir's fifth birthday party. And then when Weir was eight or nine, Bobby Black actually died from that injury. And and here's what Weir says about this. It's actually the opening line of the chapter. Bobby Black died in time from the spinal injury he suffered on my grandmother's stairs. And I am immediately drawn to and also bothered by this phrasing, right? There is no agency here at all. It's really masterful use of the passive voice to avoid any culpability. But then it's also coupled by his not being sure even when this was, which I I just find totally unbelievable, right? At eight or nine, we're all measuring time in school years. And I do not for a moment believe that Weir doesn't remember precisely what grade he was in or, or which summer between grades this was when he lived with his aunt. So to me, just the first three sentences of this chapter indicate that Weir is actually pretty haunted by Bobby Black's death, and he cannot face his role in it, even as he himself is is nearing his own death. And this memoir is him, I think, perhaps grappling with what his life has been. Yeah, I mean, he really is haunted by it. He, he must be, but I can't imagine trying to untangle these senses of guilt or, or culpability, as you put it, Glenn. Alden 
weird. Uh, Dan was a very young child and is now, we think, an old man. And he's thinking back on this event. And years have passed between the action of the fall on the stairs and the consequence that is Bobby Black's death. I mean, it's just uh, it's a horrible situation. And just a reminder, the reference we get to this event is found on page 17 of chapter one. The boys are playing and young Weir is trying to defend his uncle's portrait from an onslaught of apples being thrown at it. And then we get this line. At last we close, grunting, each grasping the other's pudgy body like wrestlers, wet-faced and weeping. For a moment, we sway. So if we look back at this line, they're wrestling. There's a challenge in kind of placing blame. And and with the years passing between these events, you know, it almost feels like it it could have been Weir who died from an injury on the fall of the stairs instead of Bobby Black. Like this is an ultimately contingent event that comes to define his childhood. And this event, the way it's tied to his parents leaving could have to do with his parents leaving in order to avoid social difficulties that result from Bobby's death. So yeah, t- tough situation for this kid. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and of course, at a, at a time when there were no, you know, child counselors to to take a kid to, to, to work through this. And as we get further and further into this book, I think that we're going to really see that as the inciting incident, essentially, for all of Weir's life. That That's what it seems to be right now for me. So we'll, we'll keep track of that as we go. We may change our mind, but certainly it's been extremely important and extremely formative for him and, and still is something that he has trouble facing and really thinking about. And we're going to see that here in this chapter, just sort of how much he's kind of not thinking about it is actually going to be fairly conspicuous on the, the page. But we do get here the, the rest of the information about Weir's situation this summer, and it is going to turn out to be a summer, at least to to start. And as we talked about last chapter, the Weirs and the Blacks occupy a high place in the social strata of Cassonsville. And so Bobby's death created some tension between the families, as you're you're suggesting, Brandon. And presumably, you know, before then, really would be my guess. But but after Bobby's funeral, Weir's parents take this trip. They essentially decide to Get out of town while everyone is talking about how their son pushed Bobby down the stairs and gave him a spinal injury that eventually killed him. I am not sure this is particularly good parenting, but it is what they decided to do. And the summer, at least, is fairly interesting for Weir. So they leave Weir with Olivia, who Weir now as an adult uh, surmises <laughs> actually had no say in the matter. Uh, this wasn't something she volunteered for because she was so clearly, you know, now that he's thinking about it, at least in part financially dependent on Weir's father, who is her older brother. Olivia lives in a house of her own. This is actually just a few doors down from the big house that had been Weir's grandmother's and is also the house in which he and his parents live. And it was a big deal to Weir that he had to leave his own house and go live with Olivia in hers. And he even says that for a while, he would go by his house and you know, look in the windows. And to be honest, I'm not sure why the arrangement was not for Olivia to come stay at the big house with Weir rather than for him to move in with her. I mean, right, this house is also the house that Olivia grew up in and Weir's got all of his stuff there. So, you know, again, right, this just does not feel like the best parenting. (laughs) These don't feel like the best choices. Uh, You know, to be honest, it's not clear to me that Weir's parents are very good at having the interests of others at the forefront of their 
decision making. Yeah, I, I mean, Weir tells us that he felt abandoned and alone more so at this point than at any other point in his life when his parents made this decision. I, I think you're right, Glenn, to point out that the parents are really only interested in themselves. So far, we have seen very little of them in this novel. And Weir's relationship with them then seems distant, to say the least. And that's kind of present in the text really through its general absence, through the relationship with the parents having any real content, really making up any of the text. It's it's the lack of commentary that we get about his parents rather than these kind of snippets we get here that, that give us a fuller sense of Weir's relationship with them. We barely even know their names, quite honestly. I mean, we learned in the last chapter his mother was named Adelina or Del. Della and his father, I mean, in a blink and you'll miss it, name unveiling is named John. I bring that up now because it may come up later <laughs> in our coverage of chapter two. Uh, but let's take a moment and talk about Olivia here. We see in our first interaction between Aunt Olivia and Weir that he remembers her mocking him for going back to his home after his parents left to look in the windows of the empty house, as you said, Glenn. I mean, this is just a heartbreaking image. Thinking that your parents just got rid of you, maybe, and never went on, actually went on vacation, seeing if they're still home, but then you get mocked by your aunt for it. So, I mean, just oof. This kid has got a tough home life this summer. <laughs> yeah, indications are that Olivia and her older brother, John, who is Weir's dad, may also not have had the best parents. Yeah, that's true, too. Uh, let's just hone in on Olivia's name real quick before we move on. This name has been around for a really long time, but it's a name that was popularized by Shakespeare in Twelfth Night. That's a rom-com. It's a farce about mistaken identities, suitors, lords, and, and servants, and, you know, all that fun stuff. So, you know, this is the second or third reference we've seen to, to Shakespeare in this memoir so far. And so it's clear that Wolf, the writer, is kind of drawing on these stories to create a, a kind of internal iconography and archetypal characters for the playing out of this memoir that he's writing, this fictional memoir. So, you know, we'll see if Olivia has anything to do with uh, rom-com stuff or suitors or servants <laughs> or anything like that. Right. And of course, Twelfth Night, which is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, is very much about, you know, pretending to be someone you're not and then getting yourself in a weird situation where you want to proclaim your true identity and hope things work out for the best. So I don't know if we'll see any of that, you know, in in, in this chapter or in the, the novel as we progress, but that should also be you know, something we keep in mind. And of course, Olivia also, I mean, you know, just it's olive, right? That's what we're talking about. Olives and uh, olives, olive branches, right? A symbol of peace. And hey, that's the name of this book. That's right. One more thing to point out with Twelfth Night is that some of these mistaken identities are, you know, gender non-conforming, basically. Men dressing as women, women dressing as men, that sort of thing. Hey, that might show up in this chapter as well. Well, and this chapter is like 85% of the novel, so a lot might happen, actually, in this, in this <laughs> chapter. Well, let's carry on with Weir's sort of early phases here with uh, with Aunt Olivia. And we've noted before that Weir is very interested in architecture and, and specifically houses. I mean, I think we actually know more about the house that his parents live in than we actually know about his parents. And in fact, we may know more even about his uh, his his maternal grandfather's uh, house, you know, more as well, more than we know about his actual parents. And we're, of course, at this point, right, he's living in a mansion that he designed. And within it, he has these weird 
museum rooms, right? These replicas of rooms from other houses that matter to him. And so we get a, a detailed description of Olivia's house here at this point as well, especially in contrast to, to Weir's house, uh, the house that he always refers to as his grandmother's house, the house he grew up in, not the, the mansion that he's in right now. And that house, uh, his grandmother's house, was high, vertical, and secretive. But Olivia's house is wide and sprawling, though it's still two-storied and it's also got you know an attic and a cellar. But Weir completes the contrast by saying, In my grandmother's house, I had always felt that the house knew but would not tell. In my Aunt Olivia's house, that the house itself had forgotten. And that's a really great line there, just a brilliant bit of, of writing. And there is more to the description than this, and, and maybe we can come back to that. But I actually want to shift our attention now to Olivia's dogs. Uh, Olivia raises Pekingese dogs. This is a, a well-known and I think pretty easily recognizable breed of dogs. They're lab dogs with you know, like bulging eyes and scrunched faces and these really shaggy manes. They're called lion dogs in Mandarin, and they were the, the special purview of the Chinese imperial court in early modernity, I guess is when when I would say that was. And Weir says here that this modern breed is, is really a kind of cast off of a uh, a much larger breed from the, the Middle Ages when they were really much more lion-sized. And he, he compares them to the European Mastiff. And he invokes foo dogs here, which are the, the stone lions that you often find as you know, decorative guards at large buildings in China. Also, like I think every Chinese restaurant in America, or at least P.F. Chang's. That's really what I'm, <laughs> what I'm talking PF about. At least P.F. Chang's, right. <laughs> right. That's, that's what I'm envisioning there. And Olivia is trying to recreate those larger dogs by selectively breeding Pekingese for their size. And I'm really reminded here of instances where we have encountered this in Wolf's fiction before, right? Feather tigers hinges completely around restoring tigers by selectively breeding house cats for their size. I mean, there's some genetic tricks as well, but like that's the key thing there is breeding house cats for their size. And then, of course, we've also had the passage on Dolo's Law in the fifth head of Cerberus about how evolutionary changes cannot be reversed, no matter how much Olivia wants to reverse them, right? So this is something that we have seen uh, in Wolf before. Yeah, it certainly is. And I mean, we'll get more references, I think, to to Wolf's work, uh, his you know oeuvre as we continue, some explicit, maybe some implicit. We've already seen that Wolf has a core set of ideas that he's playing with, even in the coverage of short stories and novels and novellas that we've done up to this point. And we've seen perhaps in a, in a predictive manner in the way that some of these ideas culminate in the book of the new sun. But I want to talk about Olivia's house a little bit. And there's something here that I'm really not sure what to do with yet, uh, but it's the emphasis on the color green. The shutters were green. The roof is green for moss growing on it. Weir makes a reference to verdigris, the green color that copper gets, that kind of hue. Uh, it's the color of the Statue of Liberty, for instance, when acetic acid is applied to it. There are also secret places in this house, which we know is kind of a, an early motif in this novel. There's window seats that hide things and piano benches that hide things as well, or you can put things in them. And I mean, Weir points out that music was stored in one of them, sheet music, which to me, the most likely candidate for that is the piano bench. I, I grew up with a piano bench like that. 
And so we should wonder maybe what's in the window seat. <laughs> and this just got me thinking about, you know, the most famous case of something in the window seat that I can think of is is from a favorite movie of mine, Arsenic and Old Lace, where Cary Grant discovers that his precious aunts have been murdering boarders because they feel sorry for them. <laughs> and he learns this after discovering a body in the window seat. I'm not sure that that's what Wolf has in mind here, but it certainly evoked that image for me while I was reading this section. I mean, there's no explicit evidence that says Olivia is not murdering people and storing bodies in window seats. So <laughs> could be. Yeah, we, we don't know what's not in the text. So it, could, it certainly <laughs> could be the case. He doesn't have an uncle pretending to be uh, Teddy Roosevelt due to a mental illness, though. So that, you know, that's something that's not in this book. That is an arsenic and old lace. Uh, I, I have one, one other thing I want to touch on that has to do with Aunt Olivia's fascination with Chinese culture and China. Weir makes this reference to the Forbidden City here. And I just want to point this out briefly. The Forbidden City was built in the early 15th century as a palace and a winter residence for the Ming dynasty. It houses a lot of temples and gardens and stuff. But the way this illusion is used seems to me to want to refer to the sheltered women who lived there or were forced to live there, uh, their, their silliness or something like that. It's a very difficult illusion to parse. But what it evokes for me in, in thinking about motifs in this novel so far are these senses of lost places that can't be returned to or even gotten to. And we saw many examples of these in the last chapter, and they've all been about America or regional America on some level. This one is more about China, and and there's some sense of shelteredness or of exclusiveness to these lost or secret places. Again, not sure what to do with it, but it's just another time that this motif is used. Well, I think there's a real sense in both of the way that America is conceived, especially in chapter one, and Olivia's conception of China, a place she has never visited and you know simply has read a lot about and pursued an interest in. That is kind of a fantasy world for her because she's never actually been there. So she can't really know it. And that's kind of how the visions of America felt in chapter one as well, that there's this kind of, you know, fantasy version of these real places that exist in our minds that is maybe different from what the reality is, a kind of, you know, the the map is not the territory kind of uh, situation here that might be something that Wolf has in mind. And I think, you know, we'll especially have to see if we keep getting more instances of this. Yeah, I think that's actually a perfect way to put it together. And I couldn't have done that. So I'm really glad you (laughs) summarized it like that, that there is this relationship between memory and imagination that is really important, I think, to the conception and structure of this novel. Oh, and I agree completely with that. And uh, just to circle back to the thing you really began this commentary with, Brandon, but the the green, I will say, I have nothing for that. I'm not sure what's up with the greenness <laughs> in his house, but I think it's definitely worth thinking about. The only thing that maybe, you know, pops to mind there, of course, is thinking about olives as, you know, themselves green, green olives, I guess. I prefer green olives to black olives. I'm probably a, you know, weirdo for that, but uh, uh, also just, you know, the greenness of like an olive branch or the olive tree. I think olive often actually, you know, will refer to that shade of green that someone might be wearing or on a flag or something will refer to as olive. So, you know, it might simply be that Wolf is kind of going with a, a sort of color motif for her that's uh, that's related to her name. I think that completely could be the case. I mean, I we've seen in chapter one that there are characters called gold and characters called black. Uh, so color as name 
the way these people are beginning to accrue their own symbolism that kind of adheres to them in Weir's mind is certainly going to be a part of what I expect to see as this novel continues. But yeah, green might be a color we see. It might be somebody's name that comes up. It might have nothing to do with olive. It might be a symbol that just contingently, coincidentally accrues alongside Olivia and Weir kind of puts these things together. We don't know how all the symbols are being used yet, but this chapter, as we go through it, we're going to see how Wolf is thinking about uh, people and symbols and the way they relate to one another. Yeah. And it, it may also just turn out, you know, by the end of this book that the, they're actually all just power rangers and these are the colors that they're going to get. Yeah. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's go and really meet Olivia. Uh, we may actually be living with her longer than we did at the pace that we're, uh, we're getting through this uh, this chapter. <laughs> and uh, in Cashinsville here in the early 20th century, girls grow up with the understanding that when they are adults, they're going to be a wife, a mother and a homemaker. And that is certainly what we've seen of Weir's mother, though, of course, she grew up elsewhere. But that has never been Olivia's vision of herself. It's never been the life that she's had in mind for herself. And Weir even says of her that she made herself ridiculous by caring nothing for so many of the things valued by us, the people about her, her relatives and friends, and the very now-grown girls with whom she had shared a desk in school— Olivia doesn't cook. She often just eats a pickle for dinner and has almost every hobby conceivable. She plays the piano and the harp. She paints. She sculpts. She's into literature of every sort. And she even subscribes to scholarly and scientific journals. And then when she's done reading them, she donates those to the the local library. She's also raising these dogs. Uh, She loves to make flower arrangements, uh, especially with plants that most people don't really care for, it seems. And, you know, if she were born a century later, she'd probably have several podcasts as well as the the impression that I have (laughs) of her. And so really what we get here is that Olivia is also a loner. And that seems to be, you know, half her idea, I should say, and half everyone else's. Sometimes she just stays in her house for days working on her hobbies, especially when the, the weather is bad. But then sometimes she'll get very social and she will go out and she'll call on other women like every day for you know a brief period of time, uh, though no one ever calls on her. No one ever stops by her house you know, to hang out because all she has is pickles, apparently. And so far, 60 pages into this book, I've got to say, Olivia is the only person that we've met who I would actually like to hang out with. Uh, that is about to change, but that's how it feels right now. Yeah, Olivia really strikes me as a person who both values her freedom and independence, but also desperately wants people to know like just how free and independent she is. I mean, I suppose that's what communities are for, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you're seen and validated by the people who are around you, and even your eccentricities are defined by the derivation from the communal norms. And I think Wolf really nails this idea here. Olivia is exactly who she is. Because she's viewed in her local community as eccentric, you know, in these ways that you describe. I I, I was listening to an interview with a screenwriter, a guy who wrote a film called The Guest. It's a kind of war comes home horror movie. I admire it for a number of reasons. And he talked about how in small towns, there are people who discover stuff from outside the community and bring it in. And so they can become, quote, a culture of one. 
And Olivia is like that. I mean, this is also the archetype given to Zoe Deschanel's character in 500 Days of Summer as well. (laughs) These admirable traits of women who reject on some level the norms or what's expected of them and yet who are still defined by what we call the male gaze. And I don't I don't want to get into that here. But I mean, the fact that Olivia is understood more by Weir through her relationships with her suitors and that she perhaps represents something the other women fear to bring out of themselves. All of that is caught up in some level in this kind of close knit community, maybe in a sublimated way as a competition for for male attention. I say this not really to cast aspersion on the novel or to point out how quaint this is or anything like that. Like this is how local communities where people interact with each other really function. And there's not, I'm not using like the male gaze in this pejorative sense. There's also people look at each other, people define one another through their social interactions and social relations. People become kinds of characters, reputations accrue over time. People carry around stock concepts of others in order to lighten the cognitive load of communal participation, you don't have to invent somebody or try to understand them every time you interact with them. And that forms these sorts of close bonds and knots that can leave you both feeling shackled to a persona you've created and also free to be that persona because that's what's expected of you. Uh, Olivia then is what you'd call, you know, like a real character in the sense of communal persona, though she's just being herself. Even though she's just being herself, She's also meeting the expectations of those around her, and she's had no small part in forming those expectations. Well, I think this is also where we get the the Shakespeare reference really showing up here, right? Is that uh, Olivia, in in this sense, is rejecting the roles that are really just assigned to, to women in this society and saying, no, thank you. I don't want to have any of those roles. I'm going to exercise the options that would be available to me if I were a man. And that is essentially, you know, I don't know, that's Twelfth Night in a nutshell, or at least, you know, part of Twelfth Night in <laughs> right. a nutshell, right? So that's where that that's coming in here. And that's what she's she's doing. She's just saying, I don't want to like cook and clean and have kids. I don't want to do those things. I have hobbies. I want to pursue interests. So I will go live by myself and, you know, have all the books that I want. Yeah, exactly. And so she does. And we'll see uh, in the next episode or the one after that, one of her role models, perhaps that, you know, I I gave us some uh, contemporary references. I think Wolf and thus Olivia has somebody very specific in mind that she's trying to emulate or that she admires. Well, Brandon, you mentioned suitors. In fact, you have you have teased them quite nicely several times already. And yeah, ultimately, this whole chapter is actually structured around Olivia's three suitors. We're going to get the first of them introduced now. Uh, we're actually going to be with him next episode as well. And this is Professor Peacock. Uh, the university is 35 miles away. The professor comes to Cashinsville for the sole purpose of courting Olivia. Uh, he takes the train, they have a date, and then he stays the night at the local hotel and he takes an early train back just in time to teach his morning classes. And we don't ever learn what his academic discipline is or you know, like what research he's doing or any of the things that I would like to know. And, and not because Weir doesn't tell us. He's not being cagey about it. It's because Weir also doesn't know because, hey, he was a kid and you know wouldn't think to ask these questions. But he does speculate here that it was likely anthropology or American history. But he also admits that the professor talked about a lot of things. And here, you know, thinking about this, Weir 
thinks about the separation between people's livelihoods and their true interests in some unremunerated field. Uh, he invokes you know sports here and uh, the mathematics of of comics and circus posters, right? But it could be you know talking about fifty year old science fiction books, you know, in, in our case, right? <laughs> and this uh, this seemingly casual observation really resonated with me, and I, I think also you know gives us an insight into Wolf's own inner life at a time when, you know, as he's writing these lines, he's still working for Procter and Gamble and trying to make it as a writer. And we know that at this point, he was not liking that job very much. Yeah, I want to read this passage because it harkens back to what we saw in chapter one, the idea of the great man theory of history or great person, I should really say. This is what Wolf or Weir rather writes For after all, if the lives of most men are examined in detail, it will be found that they have been experts of immense stature in some unremunerated field. The strategy and theory of some sport or the practice of some craft have had exhaustive knowledge of old circus posters or 18th century insigns or the mathematics of comets. I'm going to withhold commenting on this here uh, and maybe how it relates to, to the great man theory, because we have one more passage that we should recap before uh, we close out this section. Yes, right. There's one last thing we need to do in this section before we bring this episode to a close. And and this is just one paragraph in the introduction to Professor Peacock. And, that, and this paragraph is entirely parenthetical. I mean, it's literally in parentheses. And it describes an engraving that hung in the front parlor in Weir's grandmother's house, And what matters is that this is the next entry in this sequence of meditations on America that we've been charting. And I think let's just read the relevant section here. It depicted Columbus plucking from the wave to the amazed delight of his onlooking men, a sprig of dogwood with the setting sun sinking in a most promising welter of light in the background. When I was a boy, this picture always gave me the impression, as I believe it was intended to, that the new world was uncreated prior to its discovery. This passage directly precedes the one about how kind of all people, all men in particular, since we're talking about Professor Peacock in some way, are great. And let's just spend this time with this engraving, this really iconographic engraving that we are new from his grandmother's house as a child. You know, Columbus is plucking a sprig of dogwood to his onlooker's amazement, while a girl grips, quote, mid-perilous seas to the Rock of Ages. And this, we're told, gave Weir, Glenn, as you already said, the impression that the new world was uncreated before it was discovered. I mean, this image, first of all, is an image that is meant to tie Columbus's discovery of America to the providence of the Christian God. The Rock of Ages is a symbol of Christ, while Dogwood is in some traditions, uh, some kind of legends of Christianity, thought of as the wood that was used to build the cross. So we have another one of these images or ideas of America here as well. And Glenn, I think you said it perfectly earlier, the the kind of fantasy, the fable of America. And this is tied up with the notion that perhaps there are great men, if you look closely, everywhere. There is lots of unsung greatness and dignity to be found in everyone. But all of these notions get tangled and more complex as we kind of move through this chapter in a way that I kind of astonished me as I was as I was reading it. 
Well, I really like the way that you're you're tying these two things together. And of course, even just using the term new world here, you know, in capital letters, proper noun, rather than 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 saying America. I mean, new world is the the fantasy name for, for, for this place, this continent that you and I are on, right? Because of course it was not new. Is, you know, in any sense, it's, you know, it's new only to Columbus and to people in Europe who are just hearing about it for the first time, right? That it's new to them. But, but lots of people, of course, in this moment be like, well, I, I was born here and it looks the same right now as it did last week. There's not really a whole lot of, you know, newness or, or novelty going on here. And so, you know, then the newness, the novelty exists only in the imaginations of some people, people who have named it this, right? So new world is just automatically a kind of imaginary place, even as it is, you know, referring to something that actually exists or a place that actually exists. It's uh, it's almost kind of like an alternate reality way of thinking about it there. And I like the way that you are tying that with the the hobbies that that people have, which is, you know, it's also something we're getting, not just in this uh, you know, idea of people being experts in something that doesn't make them any money, uh, something that they love, that they have to do only when they have time away from the thing that they are doing to make a living. Olivia is engaging in all these unremunerative activities as well and like loving that life, right? Like she, I think probably thinks of herself as kind of heroic for having chosen that life, having chosen this life where she gets to do those things instead of having to do things that she hates to do. And Wolf clearly, right? This is the Wolf who wrote for lesson is the Wolf who wrote this book, right? They're written around the same time. And when Wolf is at this job in Procter and Gamble, and I think probably hating to go to work, he's inventing all of these imaginary worlds, you know, as like his hobby, something that he's getting a little bit of money uh, coming in from short story sales at this point, and clearly would rather be doing that than going to work at Procter and Gamble. And I, I think, yeah, all of these ideas are are connected here, and that's a really great observation. What's so fascinating about this is that Wolf has told us about Professor Peacock and kind of tied these ideas of, you know, greatness and dignity through the hobbies that you don't get paid for, that, you know, history is not, strictly speaking, made of great men and great acts, but everybody has this within them. And it is kind of critiquing an idea that he kind of brought up earlier in the novel. And I think we'll continue to see that as well. We're told about this through the lens of Professor Peacock, but we're shown how it functions through Olivia. And I, I don't know if that's on purpose. I don't know if he means to create tension there. It's really hard for me to pull out what's going on with the gender dynamics of this story. I mean, it's clearly written from the viewpoint of an older, you know, retirement age man. But I don't know if Wolf is doing this on purpose, on kind of showing us all these things that he's talking about with the women showing us this life and then referencing it in terms of men, telling us in terms of men. It's a it's a tension in the text that I, I still don't know what to do with. We're going to have to track that as we go on in these episodes. We did say there are three suitors, right? We're going to learn about all of them. Uh, and we are taking a long time on this chapter. So we're going to really be able to zoom in on those episodes as well. And we are not done with Professor Peacock. And so, yeah, it will be interesting to, to look at these three men sort of through the lens of Olivia, who is being presented to us as a woman who has rejected the femininity that is valued by other members of her community. And we'll have to see how that interplays with what I think of as three very different types of, of men that she's romantically involved with. Yeah, I'm excited to keep going with this chapter, but that is going to do it for this section of chapter two. 
I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. Please come by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or drop by our Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with us about uh, these seven pages here. Let us know why you think so much green is emphasized with uh, Olivia's house or point out other places where there are Shakespeare references in these few pages that we uh, that we miss. <laughs> they seem to be everywhere. And again, just a huge thanks to everyone who's been spreading the word about this show and, and really all our shows, even just a simple retweet goes a long way to helping us reach new listeners. And we are really grateful for the work that all of you do to help us out with that. We really appreciate that. So next time, we're going to be back with pages 63 to 77 in the Orb 2012 edition. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.